2: Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and we want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our corporate sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies. Uh, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp, Columbus Gold and Golden Arrow Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time James Paplava, who's very well known, I think, to probably a lot of listeners to this show. Because I think if you listen to this show, you probably uh, would have a great interest in James Paplava's show uh, that uh, that airs. It's called the Financial Sense uh, Talk Radio, and it uh, it is on the website. Uh, I guess you can listen to it at financialsense.com. Uh, James uh, Paplava graduated cum laude from, in political science from Arizona State University with honors, uh, with a master's degree. Uh, from inter- in, uh, in international management from the American Graduate School of International Management. 2007-2009, Jim was nominated by his clients and professional peers as one of uh, San Diego area's best wealth managers. Uh, for 12 years, uh, James held a position as branch manager for LPL Financial Services, uh, in 1966, uh, he established the broker-dealer firm Paplava Securities, uh, and uh, for which he is the president. Uh, his business experience includes contributing as a financial writer to various publications and acting as a TV financial reporter in 1988 Jim began began hosting the Financial Sense Talk radio on various radio stations in San Diego and today uh, he oversees the portfolio management team uh, at Poplava Financial Services and uh, Poplava Financial Services Inc which I guess is collectively known as PFS Group uh, he continues his weekly broadcast and writes a thought provoking uh... commentary uh... for financial sense online welcome james it's really good to have you with me
3: jay thanks for having me on good to be speaking with you it's really
2: good to have you i i haven't been listening to your show for some time because i i guess because i just haven't found the time running my own show you know many years ago soon after you started i believe i actually hosted one of your shows and it to be honest with you it scared the devil
3: out of me <laughs> You know, it, it, it's funny, Jay. I, I remember the first time I did television, and I went down to the television studio. They were going to train me for a week, and then they would put me on the set. Well, the, the producer said, you know, I changed my mind. I'm putting you on tonight. <laughs> oh, my God. When they, they, they put me on the set. When that camera light turned red, I thought I froze. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. But uh, you, you get used to it, and you get over it, and uh, you're doing a good job.
2: I'll bet you didn't freeze. I'll bet you you, um, the adrenaline flowed and you went right into what you had to do.
3: Well, I went right into it, but I think I moved my head back and forth too much. I looked like one of those wind-up dolls.
2: So it was uh, learning by experience rather than the training. So that's some learning by fire, I guess they say.
3: Yeah, it was kind Um, of like uh, throw you in the water and sink or swim.
2: See if you can swim, right. And uh, Yeah, well, I'm not in favor of that approach, but sometimes it's necessary. Well, you you've been a long-term believer, James, in in inflation, serious inflation. We were just talking to Anthem Blanchard, and he's also of a mind that ultimately we're going with all of the money creation that's going on. We're going to we're going to be experiencing some very uncomfortable, if not downright serious and dangerous, hyperinflation. I want to talk to you about that. Um, but before we before we talk about inflation, hyperinflation. You know, the mainstream media doesn't buy it. They they say we have inflation about 1.7%. What do you think uh, the cost of living, let's say, to feed a family of four from one year to the next, is it going up by less than 2% in your view?
3: Oh, absolutely not. I I think you almost, uh, Jay, have to look at three type of inflation rates. Uh, you, you have what I call uh, store-bought inflation. I mean, mm-hmm. for your listeners out there, that's... You know, you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, you pay your utility bills, uh, the stuff that you need to live. Right. I I would say that's probably in the five, six, seven range, probably closer to John Williams at ShadowStats. Then you have to take a look at the inflation that takes place in the financial markets where Mm -hmm. money tries to find a home and gravitates to something. All this money that's being created is going somewhere. So you have uh, inflation in those markets. And then um, you have, um, I think it's MIT that puts out uh, an inflation index. So if you mm-hmm. can shop online, and assuming that you can buy anything outside your food and groceries, uh, there's that inflation rate. So when you take them collectively, <coughs> excuse me, you you almost have to look at inflation not as one figure per se, because obviously if um, you're in a certain area of the country where they have to ship food in. Uh, you're probably more impacted to the cost of living, especially with transportation costs, versus let's say here in California where we grow this stuff. So when I look at inflation, I look at inflation from different aspects because we measure it in so many different ways today.
2: Right. Yeah, for sure. And know hedonic pricing and and some of these gizmos, uh, The uh, John Williams talks about substitution. So if Steak gets too expensive, use hamburger. Or if hamburger gets too expensive, I suppose it would be dog food. So whatever. Um, and, and so, yeah, you make a very good point because those are different areas of our lives. Certainly things that we can't import from overseas. Healthcare is going up a lot more than 2%. You can't tell me otherwise because I know what my insurance goes, health insurance goes up. And, you know, somebody said, um, before Obamacare was passed, they said, if you think health, if you think healthcare is expensive now, wait till it's free.
3: You know, it, it, it's really funny because when you when you take a look at, it, I'll, I'll tell you something else that doesn't get measured in inflation. In uh, California is a good example of this. When we passed Prop thirteen in the seventies to limit mm-hmm. property taxes, the way the governments got around that, Jay, is they start adding on fees, and so we have things like Melarus taxes because they go to a developer and say, okay. We're going to let you develop these 200 acres of land, but you're going to have to pay for a school. You're going to have to pay for uh. roads. You're going to have to pay for a fire department. Uh. So what the developer does, he doesn't want to put that cash up front. So he'll go to the municipal bond market, and they'll issue something called a Melarus bond. Huh. So in addition to the, the uh, property taxes, you have Melloruse property taxes that get added to your bill. They also add fees, inspections, and things like that. Mm-hmm. so you know if if we just raised sales tax here in California and we raised it on gasoline, so you know that doesn't get measured the cost of government. so uh, that is something I think somebody needs to develop an index that like for example, in california when the when the government just raised fees on building permits on inspection permits, or they just raised fees on taxes on gasoline, mm-hmm. nobody's counting that. And yeah, that's, we need to start measuring that because this is a government that keeps doing it.
2: Right, exactly. And it, it's, really, uh, it's really raping and pillaging the middle class for sure. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really horrible. And that is an increase in the cost of government, which doesn't get counted. Uh, moving on to the inflation Issue, you know, we had Anthem Blanchard was with us a little while ago, and I'm sort of in his camp. I I believe that there are powerful deflationary forces that are really delaying the effects of this monetary stimulation, enormous, endless amounts of money creation out of nothing by Ben Bernanke. Um, Anthem was making the point that he he believes ultimately we're gonna have this horrible inflationary problem. I, I think you've been an advocate of of you know believing that we're going to have it sooner or later. But do you think it's it's I mean, when do you think it's coming and, and, and why do you think so far it hasn't resulted in any kind of massive um, you know huge hyperinflation?
3: I think a lot of it it has to do with what's going on with the monetary transmission, Jay. I mean, the Fed has ballooned its balance sheet, but as you know, so much of it remains at the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. in the form of bank reserves. And we're making it tougher for a lot of these banks, especially with Dodd-Frank. We watch statistics in terms of large bank commercial loans, And where we're seeing loan volume increases at the mid-tiered, the regional banks. And so we have these disinflationary forces that have been out there, uh, you know, with the contraction that we saw in the housing market, and banks are not lending to the same degree that they were, uh, let's say, prior to the uh, financial crisis in 2008. You also have a slowdown in the emerging markets. Were uh, you know if you take a look at the story of the last decade, the last decade was all about emerging market growth, Mm -hmm. the tremendous demand on uh, commodities. Now that Mm -hmm. emerging market is slowing down because they really have higher inflation problems Mm -hmm. being transmitted in their economy. I'm I'm looking at a Bloomberg screen, Jay, where Mm -hmm. I've got corn prices down 39 percent. I've got aluminum prices down double digits. So. We have some of these disinflationary forces, and I think where you have to, where we get into the problem Mm -hmm. is when we start seeing these this transmission, Uh, in other words, let's say if credit growth was to start picking up, banks start Mm -hmm. saying, you know what, we feel comfortable enough with the economy right now and the way asset prices are going, that we start lending money. So you start getting that money off the Fed's balance sheet through the banking system into the economy with credit expansion. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think that's placed a limiting factor on what we've seen on the inflationary front plus some of the international factors Mm -hmm. that if you take a look at what we have, we don't have what I call hyperinflation. We don't have deflation. We have what I call disinflation, which is this sort of balance between the deflationary forces mm-hmm. and the inflationary forces, so we have moderate inflation, mm-hmm. unless you look at specific areas. I think the inflation rate for what I call the things you need to live on, I, yeah. I think that's much higher than what we report in the news.
2: Well, and the things you need to live on, um, you know, for that family of four or whatever that uh, John Williams talks about, 8 or 9% inflation, if you use his numbers, then uh the you know the living standards or the disposable income of the of most people uh, of uh, the massive uh, numbers of people that comprise the middle class has been in sharp decline and Williams numbers shows that we haven't really seen any growth that in fact we're still in a recession as far as those people are concerned what i would like to know is how do uh, how how does the how do the banks start to lend if the masses of people are really you know, tapped out on their credit cards and they can't go any further and they don't have the income to, to, uh, you know, to finance their, uh, to service their credit card debt.
3: You know, it's going to take, I think, an inflationary bubble in the asset markets, number one, kind of mm-hmm. like what we saw in the housing. And number two, I think the next transmission is going to take place more in the corporate side. Mm-hmm. with small to medium, uh, uh, mid-level businesses. Uh, if you take uh-huh. a look at corporate America, they're in very good shape. They've been bringing down their debt levels. I mean, people don't realize, you take a public utility company, Jay, and you have mm-hmm. a utility company that is heavily financed in their capital structure with debt, about 60% mm-hmm. of their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Well, if that utility can sit there and finance or refinance their bonds at 7 and 8% in issue bonds at 4%, you're generating right. a lot of cash flow because you just put your interest rate cost down. Sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of that's with, been
3: going on. Yeah. It's the same thing with those homeowners that were fortunate enough to buy early or were in their house long enough where they built equity. You know, you could get some, I mean, did you ever believe that you and I would see in our lifetime, Jay, a, a four, four and a half percent mortgage? I know I never did.
2: No, my first mortgage was 17 and a half percent. Oh my goodness. Yeah, back in the early 70s. Yeah,
3: yeah, we I, ours was 9%, and like, then so I the think uh, when we moved to California, I had a 12% mortgage. Thank goodness it was variable, and it went down. But I think we need asset price inflation uh, mm-hmm. before you can see, as you mentioned, the middle class guy cannot walk into his employer and say, look, my utilities are up, my gas bills are up, my food bills are up. Uh, my insurance premiums are up. Tuition, clothes for my kids. I need a fifteen percent raise so after taxes I can have the seven or eight percent to pay, you know, my, my uh, keep up with the cost of living. Mm-hmm. You went to your employer and asked him for that. He'd say, "Go look for another job."
2: Exactly right. In this environment, that's right. It wasn't true in the in the late seventies when we had a real inflationary problem. In those days, uh, it was it seemed to be possible for employers to a great extent to pass along some of that.
3: Yeah, I, I think part of the reason uh, it, it is today is because the markets are more global. Mm-hmm. If you look at the '70s, it was pretty much a domestic-oriented market. So companies, as wages went up, I think unions were a little stronger back then. Yeah. So that transmission of higher labor cost uh, was felt immediately. Now, uh, a company could say, look. If you don't like the job, I can get somebody else to come in or, if, you know, enough of you don't like working here, we'll just move the factory.
2: Uh Jim, let me ask you because I <clears throat> I meant to ask you this before we got into the inflation issue, but uh what are you doing and what are you telling your clients? First of all, tell us at PFS Group, what what are you what do you do? What do you do there?
3: Uh we have three companies, Jay. I have an mm-hmm. independent broker dealer that I started in 1996
4: uh-huh. and
3: uh it was basically, um, even being with a uh, independent, uh, I was limited in terms of my investment choices. I can remember buying gold stocks back in 1993 mm-hmm. um, and getting a call from my compliance department like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you yeah. know? So we have a broker-dealer that clears through Fidelity. We have a money management arm. And then we have a financial planning arm because I started out as a certified financial planner mm-hmm. and we do a lot of retirement planning uh, for our clients. So, those are the three aspects of our business that uh, we operate that help people either with investments or planning. Mm-hmm. And, what sort of, cl- I, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and the reason I wanted to, to set up my own broker dealer, people have no idea. How they get clipped in the markets. You know, when you see even a, a discount uh, broker where you're paying six uh-huh. and seven dollars, you don't realize that they're running the stops when you put stops in your account. They don't realize mm-hmm. how they sell the order flow to market makers that can take advantage of you. And yes. people do not realize if you're buying um, individual bonds, the amount of markups that are put in bond departments. I mean, we're fortunate enough that we have Bloombergs and we deal with 30 different bond dealers around the globe. But it was one reason why I set up a, uh, an independent broker-dealer because I did not want to have uh, that kind of stuff going on that would affect the execution of what we were trying to do for our clients.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right, So you, so people can open an account and they can buy stocks and bonds through your broker-dealer operation, I guess.
3: Well, they can do that. Or the the strongest part of our business is we manage money for a fee. We we mm-hmm. have various accounts depending on a person's objective. That's probably the largest portion of mm-hmm. our business
2: and uh, financial planning as well. So, what kind of clients uh, would be best served by your by your business? I mean, are we, are you looking for accredited investors only? Are you looking for more average people, or what? What are you looking you for? Know,
3: it, our minimums are a little higher because, Jay, we actually buy individual bonds. We buy individual uh-huh. stocks. A lot of money managers today just you know, put you in mutual funds or ETFs. Sure. Because mm-hmm. we actually pick stocks, because we mm-hmm. actually pick bonds, mm-hmm. we require a higher minimum. So the minimums are 250000 So. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people that have 250,000 are probably closer to retirement. They're in their sure. 50s or 60s. But the reason the minimums that high is we don't put people in ETFs or mutual funds.
2: Okay, well that's understood. And so you're getting special attention in a sense that you don't when you're just uh, sort of buying with the masses, I guess. So financial planning and retirement planning—that's all sort of part of uh, part of what you do then, I guess
3: yeah because what we're trying to do, Jay, is we're trying to get people to have some kind of plan or an idea heading into retirement. i I would say we're doing more of it now, and a lot of that is a reflection of the environment that the Fed has created. I mean, you know, yeah. we used to laugh and we used to think about Japan with zero interest rates, right. Here we are at zero percent. I mean uh, here here here's a a, a mind blowing number now. If you were to retire in the year 2000 and you had a million dollars, you would probably think to yourself, boy, I'm pretty well off. I really did mm-hmm. well. I put some money away. I got a million dollars. You could have probably got $60,000, $70,000 a year in income. But let's say right. you had a million dollars and you wanted to put it in a one-year T-bill. You <laughs> would only get $1,000 on a, a million-dollar investment in a one-year treasury bill. That's so, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean that just goes to show you. I mean it's great that we could get four percent mortgages, but if you've been a saver all your life, it's not good news. So what we're, we are finding ourselves doing is is doing a lot more planning with people because they're you know it's it's a lot more difficult I think for people to retire today because you know Jay, your parents and my parents probably got a defined benefit pension plan. There was mm-hmm. greater security in the pension system that no longer exists. So that security has been taken away and most people what they have is what they've accumulated either in a 401k program. Uh, I'm assuming if you work in the private sector, if you're in the government, you have a defined benefit, but you know, it's what you've accumulated. And what you've accumulated, you no longer have the kind of returns available to you that we used to consider. You know, if this was the nineties, I could have got you six, seven, eight percent on a bond. You know, the stock market was going up double digits a year, so it's a lot more difficult, and it requires a lot more diversification and planning, so there's a, a, some degree of stability created in the portfolio, some degree of certainty, and you, you, you don't have to freak out every time the idiots in Washington take us through the Kabuki Theater, they're taking mm-hmm. us through now.
2: Yeah, well, indeed. I, I are there ways, uh, some ideas that you have about how people in retirement can actually get something like that kind of return that you're talking about?
3: Yeah, that for we, we that we could used, have gotten uh, in 2000. Combination of things, and uh, we we have a core component of gold uh, because mm-hmm. we're. Uh, I think it's the ultimate currency. So um, with you and Anthem on that. Mm-hmm. And that percentage, you know, I, I would never go more than twenty percent. I guess that's mm-hmm. that's uh, to me that's about the upper limit. So we have a core component in gold, and it's it's kept in a secure place. And then what we do is we invest in inflation hedges. I've been a strong proponent of the stock market over the last four years, mm-hmm. and so we're invested in individual stocks that have the ability to increase their dividends each year. So. You know, maybe you're not getting an increase with your paycheck at your boss, but at least if you own a good quality company with a good business franchise, you're getting Mm -hmm. a pay increase. And then for some stability, we'll put in a laddered bond portfolio so we don't have, let's say, the interest rate risk uh, that you would have by investing in a bond fund. So we try Mm -hmm. to use a core component of gold as sort of our currency hedge, uh, individual stocks and individual bonds so it's all blended into a portfolio so that if something happens in the market you don't have all your eggs in one basket and especially mm-hmm. if you go through a very corrective phase as we've seen in gold recently or yeah. what we saw in stocks between 2008 and 2009
2: right yeah. well that's uh, it's, that makes a lot of sense you say gold uh, I, I sort of had the impression in the past that you were more of a silver guy than a gold guy
3: Well, we use both. I'm Uh much in favor. I prefer silver 60% of the metals component over gold.
2: Okay, so it would be 60-40 then, making up that 20%. Yeah, 60%
3: silver, 40% gold.
2: Yeah, of that 20%.
3: Exactly.
2: So, okay. All right, so uh, the case for silver, I suppose, stronger because of your inflation
3: views. Not only that, but, uh, you know, I'm... The believer that, you know, all the gold that's ever been produced is still out there.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: The thing about silver is it's consumed every year. So you don't have a large central bank vaults stored up with silver that could be dumped into the market or leased right. out. Although the mm-hmm. paper market, I think, is uh, sometimes influencing the actual bullion price. But I think silver is scarcer. And if you take a look at any time you have an economic pullback as we've had and weakening in the overseas market, and especially now with metals, I, as you know, Jay, 70 80% of silver is a byproduct of mining. Right. So sure. I, I'm more in favor of silver. I, I, I just happen to like it. I think it's, it's scarcer. It's, it's, uh, you don't have large above-ground stockpiles. And it's, uh, I think for your average guy, the guy that you're talking out there, you know, your middle-class guy, it's much easier to buy a you know a silver round or a silver eagle than it is uh, an ounce of gold.
2: Well, for sure, and uh, silver certainly does have that monetary component to it too, just as uh, gold has throughout history. It definitely is, uh, I think, the second best money. But in terms of where we're going now, I can't argue with you. I think it makes a lot of sense. Do you? I know in the past, uh, Jim, that you have, you have um, followed. The mining industry. Are there mining companies that you are putting your clients into? I I presume right now, gold, gold and silver companies.
3: Uh, We've had a position where we're less. uh, If you were to come in right now, uh, I'd probably wait Mm -hmm. uh, to put it in because we're following the technical aspects right now. uh, Because we do use, in addition to fundamentals, we do uh, use. Uh, technical analysis, I mean, if something's breaking down and it's falling, I don't want to put you in it. Right. And, and you know, Jay, with some of these mining stocks, man, do we love them when they go Ugh. up because they go up like rocket ships. But, boy, is it yeah. a Maalox moment when they correct. Well, tell me about it. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I, I, what we're looking for is a catalyst here. Mm-hmm. And I, my own personal feeling is that one of the catalysts is going to be that Uh, I think quantitative easing is going to be with us for a lot longer uh, than uh, the Fed would have you believe. Sure. And right now, I think the Fed has got the markets believing, well, you know, do you remember in, um, oh, I think it was 2010, Bernanke was writing op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal talking about his exit plan, and lo and behold, August of 2010, at Jackson Hole, he gives a speech and launched QE2. (laughs) <laughs> and so what did we get in May of this year? We got all that huffing and puffing and you know, we're, we're going to announce taper and uh, they talked about it and then all of a sudden the market reacted and all of a sudden they, they did a, a about face and then of course we had the September meeting and there was no taper because I don't think the economy is strong enough to, uh, hold up today with the kind of policies that we have, and I I think a lot of this, Jay, has to do with fiscal policy and what's going Mm -hmm. on in Washington. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never seen a society that can prosper by raising taxes. I mean, you take a look at where it's tried uh, and uh, where socialism has been tried. It hasn't worked. No. And so I think part of our problem right now is we have too many fiscal problems and what I call a dysfunctional uh, administration. Well,
2: it certainly does seem to be that, and uh, not to mention all of the the malinvestment that occurs through money creation uh, by the Fed, and uh, it's it's just it's just a, a lot of a very serious thing. But you know, most people, most people that I know that are in. On Wall Street people, in fact, I was talking the other day to a good friend of mine that I used to work with at ing bearings in the past and and he said to me, he just takes it for granted that sooner or later they're going to unwind uh, this uh, monetary stimulus, and I said, "Are you kidding me? How are you going to be able to do that?" The mere mention of tapering sent the markets reeling, even a tiny little bit of that eighty five billion a month uh, wasn't possible to do so i 'm with you on that jim i think I think that's just impossible for uh, for, and I don't see where that's going to – I don't. I mean, maybe you're more – I think maybe you're more bullish than I am on the economy. Maybe I'm more of a doomsday guy, and you may – I hope you're right. There is going to be growth in the economy eventually. Uh, you know, in talking to Mark and he says, well, you know, we're kind of coming out of this in spite of the government that, in fact, uh, some of the problems are being overcome. So uh, I hope you're right. But it seems to me – one of the things that I thought, Jim, is that the next big move in gold – might really occur when it's not only announced that there's not going to be more tapering, but in when at a time when QE is increased. Do you think that's possible?
3: Uh, if, if if the present administration's plans continue, I mean, they're talking about uh, with uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I've, I've seen through our political sources they're working on more tax increases uh, because it's it's not paid for. And. Yeah. Uh, I think why, uh, the biggest kick that I got, Jay, uh, they were doing some polling on Obamacare, a lot of people thought it was free. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and then they're realizing that people who don't have any money are going to have to pay for it.
3: Yeah. So, uh, And I, I think that hasn't fully dawned on people. And uh, when people find out that they have to pay for it, you, they're not getting the enrollment of young people, which are going to have to pay an inordinate amount, uh, for the insurance to compensate for older individuals like you, yourself and myself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, when young people take a look at that, they're saying this is a raw deal. I don't like this. Yeah, and that's no, one I... of the reasons why in this healthcare debate, where they've they've granted an extension to companies for one year, right? From ACA. The reason they haven't done it with individuals is they need all these young people to get suckered into the program to pay for it. Yeah. And since that's not happening, they're already talking about more tax increases.
2: Yeah. Well that'd do the economy a lot
3: of good. Yeah. So I mean it works uh, wonders, don't you think? Yeah, and I, I think if you know if the
2: if the people aren't if it hasn't dawned on the people that they're that this health uh, healthcare isn't free, I think honestly I believe what hasn't dawned on Wall Street is that we can't keep issuing more money. I mean that that, that in fact we're going to have to keep issuing more money or else the system could really implode. I mean, that's, that's what I think. I don't know if you, if you agree. Uh, before we go, and I see that my engineer is telling me we're out of time, but I want to ask you then, do you think from a technical point of view we haven't seen the lows in gold yet, very possibly?
3: I, I, I think the low in the market f- for this cycle has already put in. What I think uh-huh. we're probably going to see, Jay, is a trading range yeah. in gold. But yeah. I think is, you know, could we get down to 11.75, 1175 again? Maybe, but I, my, my gut feeling tells me the low is put in. But I don't see a big catalyst right now, which keeps it in a trading range.
2: You know, we're out of time. Uh, there are so many more things here. I was just looking at your website, Jim Paplava's big picture, five factors that will shape the next decade. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about that. We don't have any time, so people need to go to your website. Uh, And that is FinancialSense.com, right? That's FinancialSense.com, Jay. FinancialSense.com and other articles that are up there that are really very important to read uh, and to listen to. And you do also have a service. I mean, people need to pay now for your uh, radio show, I believe that's right. What what is the charge for that?
3: Uh, The weekday program is either uh, $15 a month. Uh uh-huh. it's hundred and twenty dollars a year. But that's only the weekday. The weekend program is still free at this time.
2: Okay. Well, there's so there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, that's very affordable anyway, Jim. And I think for the kind of information you give, it's something you have so many great guests. And I, I mean, I've been fortunate to have a lot of the names that I see have seen in the past pop up on your show. I've been fortunate to have here as well. But uh, just people like uh, Kevin Bartlett, uh, president of Fidelity Personal Trust Company, uh, Bert Dolan, Uh You know, these are people that are very just just a lot of really great guests and people that you have on your show. A lot of very, a lot of very. Um, Important information there, the Affordable Care Act, I see, a a roundtable discussion is up there. So I would uh, tell my subscribers not that I want you to leave my show and go to Jim's. You should listen to both of them if there's time permitting. That's the biggest thing, isn't it, Jim, is time. And we, as we get older, we remember that seems to be even more important is the limitations on time. So I don't want to take any more of yours. I want to thank you very much for being with me today, and uh, it's a pleasure talking to you.
3: Jay, thanks for having me
2: on. It's been my pleasure. Very good. Well, again, sometime, I hope. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Hear what Daniel has to say about what our foreign policymakers are up to now to convince you that we need to go to war. We'll be right back with Daniel McAdams.
1: Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project, in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in
2: Welcome back to turning hard times into good times. I'm your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Daniel McAdams, who's become a, a regular uh, a regular guest on this show. And I like to have Daniel here because I I believe that uh, what he's doing in, uh, at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, which he heads up is very very important work and i think it's uh, information that you just simply don't get on the mainstream and of course that's what this show is all about it's about trying to help you understand what's really going on as opposed to what the propaganda machine the self-serving propaganda machine uh... is is doing you know last uh... we talked a little earlier today about how goldman sachs was telling everybody to sell gold and they were out there buying all they could get at the very time uh... they were telling people to sell gold well we have a lot of people that are telling us that we have to be scared about all these other countries around the world and therefore we have to go to war and beat the hell out of them and kill them and take over their countries and insert our own governments our own puppets there in order to make us safe here in america well ron paul of course is Believe the opposite is true, that we would be safer if we mind our own business, we trade with people, uh, interact with them, be friendly with them, uh, but don't go trying to tell them how to live their lives, how to change their societies, how to tell them their religions are wrong, how to tell them how to live. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Ron has always believed that. Um, uh, that the golden rule is kind of a good idea. If you want to get along with people, you might want to treat them the way you'd like to be treated. So Daniel McAdams is heads up Ron Paul's Institute, and Daniel was with Ron Paul, was his foreign policy, uh, his foreign policy expert in when Ron was a congressman, and uh, so he stayed on with Ron, uh, Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Welcome, Daniel. Really good to have you with us again. Thanks, Jay. It's always good to talk to you i'd like to have you on just to go over some of the articles at the ron paul institute uh, dot org uh, ron paul dot org uh, and a couple of articles that you wrote if we could talk about those first one was uh... representative mike rogers threatens extrajudicial execution my goodness that sounds pretty severe what's what's that all about
5: it is and it's um... you know i start out by talking about how you know we have a an annual human rights report that our state department writes. About every other country in the world, we we see ourselves as being fit to judge how other countries uh, behave in terms of human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the one of the top categories for countries that don't respect human rights is whether they engage in extrajudicial executions, <laughs> uh, which means you know killing people without a trial. Right. Yeah. So I mean, which is a pretty good it's a pretty good mark of a pretty nasty country. People that would do that. Yes. But, you know, we would a, never do that in America. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well there was a um a panel discussion this past week on cybersecurity where um former NSA and CIA chief Michael Hayden uh was there with the current chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers, who's a Republican from Michigan. Uh, you know, the talk when the talk uh moved to Eric Snowden, the NSA leaker, and the fact that he was on a list to receive a human rights award from Europe, um, Hayden made a little joke saying, "You know, he'd also thought of nominating Snowden for a list, uh, but it was for a different list. You know, ha ha ha, meaning the kill list." Right. Uh, and um, it becomes less funny when you realize that he actually had the power at the time to do that. Um, but without missing a beat, Chairman Rogers, who is one of the most pro-war neocons in the House. Uh, who himself comes from an intelligence background uh, uh, he chimed in right away and said, "Oh, I can help you with that oh wow, so it's um even if it was all meant to be jokey, these guys have the power to do that uh, and it's not only is it not funny someone in a position of Rogers to make such a statement is just so outrageous uh and and repulsive how how far we've fallen that we joke." About things that we judge other countries being 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 horrible dictatorships for.
2: Exactly right, and of course, uh, I'd like to just remind our listeners once again that it wasn't it wasn't made public on our airwaves by our major media, but uh, Der Spiegel reported that a former president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Uh, said that we no longer have a functioning, or we don't currently have a functioning democracy in the United States. Now, we're a country that went around, uh, we had, uh, we got involved in World War I to make the world safe for democracy, and yet we don't even have one here, according to President uh, uh, President Carter. Whatever you think of President Carter, the fact that a former sitting president of the United States would make such a statement, and the fact that the American uh, media, of course, would not pick this up, says a lot about About the lack of truthfulness in our media, wouldn't you say so, Daniel?
5: Sure, I I think it does, and I think you know the President Carter, for his funny reputation years ago, has certainly made up for it in a lot of the uh, efforts he's made toward real human rights. So people should listen when he says something like that. Um, But I think I I would think that we, uh, you know, we should be a little bit more encouraged. And I think he's, you know, he has a very good point to make. But I think the recent um, uproar over the president's uh, desire to bomb Syria. And the fact that so many Americans were opposed to it uh, resulted in it not happening or at least contributed to the decision to not, to not do this uh, is perhaps a bit of good news in an otherwise uh, sort of glum statement by, by the former president.
2: Yeah, for sure, um, which maybe while we're on the note of optimism, I can just ask you about an article that Ron Paul wrote on, on the website, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, called uh, titled The Phone Call. And that had to do with the discussion. Ron has been an advocate of talking uh, to your enemies before, before going to war and of trying to avoid that if possible. Um, and uh, I guess maybe you just pass along Ron's ideas and his thoughts in that article called The Phone Call.
5: Well, I think it was cautious optimism with a bit of an emphasis on the cautiousness. Sure. Uh, you know, he uh, he wrote, quote, It's a good sign that the phone call has infuriated the neoconservatives back home, the pro-war faction in Israel, and the hardliners in Iran. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, that President Obama um, had a telephone conversation with the president of, of Iran, this is the first discussion between the two heads of, of state since the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and, mm-hmm. uh, and as we know, Rouhani, the the new president of Iran, is considered a moderate, and certainly his his style of speaking has is a, is an enormous change since his predecessor. Uh, so the phone call, Dr. Paul believes, is a very positive sign. However, within the article is, is is a serious warning that these that the neocons and the warmongers are not going to give up, whether no. they're here or in Iran or in Israel or elsewhere. So um, he cited a recent CNN poll that more than 75% of Americans favored negotiations with Iran. So that's a good sign. Uh, most people are, are with the president on this. Uh, but, you know, just as the president is having this phone call, you have several members of Congress. Uh, you probably uh, know these names well, Jay. Um, Lindsey Graham, uh oh, yeah. notorious... Uh, and also Trent Franks from uh, from Arizona, who's mm-hmm. who's a big neocon, introducing legislation to authorize the president to go to war with Iran, you know, almost literally as he's on the phone. <laughs> so, so they are not going to give up easily. And as a matter of fact, uh, as Dr. Paul mentioned in his column, they're probably going to try to double the propaganda. Well, so I we would guess so. Yeah, yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. And uh, you know, all the major networks will be out there uh you know for the most part they won 't they won 't be listening to uh, to Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich on these issues they 'll be uh, although it 's good it 's encouraging to have Ron coming on sometimes and I saw him with Jay Leno recently and some other people uh, he is a bloomberg and it's it 's good it 's uh, we have to keep uh, we have to keep trying i think daniel um, okay sure. so speaking of neocons, another article that you wrote uh... nsa wolves in reformers clothing uh... they're not going to go away talk to us about that because what i think will happen is you'll have the liberals in the democratic party that will try to say you know yeah this was good but man we've got to be careful because these are dangerous people these are dangerous countries out there we've got to we've really gotta to remain tough yeah, so what, exactly. wh- who are these who are these uh, nSA wolves in reformers clothing that you 're talking about?
5: Uh, well, one of the points I make is that the two most dangerous things that you hear out of Washington is let 's create a commission and let 's reform something because yeah. it both means that things are about to get worse you know and with all of these revelations about the nsa spying on the on all of us instead of the the, the bad guys, the real bad guys out there. Um, the first thing washington wants to do is to have a reform process uh so where you have honest people like senator ron wyden who i think really does have our civil liberties at, at, in mind uh is looking to do some ser- make some serious changes the same is true with justin amash representative from uh, from michigan uh, mm-hmm. both of them have have serious reforms uh a- a- including simply re uh, cutting off the money which is the best way to do it. Right. You have other people who jump on the reform bandwagon like Senator Diane Feinstein from California who who absolutely loves the NSA, she loves the surveillance state. And so she introduced a reform bill that actually gives more authority, more surveillance authority to the NSA so it's yeah it 's reform, but it 's reform going in the opposite direction,
2: but and the impression is, that she would want to leave is that it 's in a more humane protective environment, right I mean she well, would want know,
5: to... i mean in, in in the House and in, indeed in all politics in the u s you have really the triumph of dialectical materialism yeah <laughs> so so what what feinstein 's reform seeks to do. Is to carve out, quote, middle ground, uh, between her and someone like Wyden and Amash who actually do want to make things better. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is how it is with the, uh, the thesis, antithesis, and and synthesis. You know, you'll Mm -hmm. have, you'll have Wyden on one end and then Feinstein will come in, well, let's compromise and have my bill as a compromise. Uh, but what it does is it gives the NSA an enlarged window during which they can, uh, spy on People who arrive in the United States, so it actually gives them more power to spy here domestically on people. So, so, so on form. the
2: surface, so on the surface, the wine, uh, you know, the, 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 these these lawmakers <clears throat> can uh, actually convince their people that they're on the side of liberty and, and less uh, government intrusion, when in fact they're doing exactly the opposite.
5: Sure, and you have to, as usual, you know, you have to read between the lines. So she has some language, some very cosmetic language in there that will have more reporting, which is absolutely useless. You know, yet another report. Uh, there'll be more reporting and maybe they will, um, they'll appoint a, a government paid advocate for our privacy within the system as if that will help. Uh, you know, so they, they, they'll employ all this language, but when you really look between the lines, it's, it's the opposite of reform.
2: Mm-hmm. Sheep in wolves' clothing, as they say, or NSA wolves in reformers' clothing, as you wrote in your article. That's uh, uh, two of the articles you wrote. There's another one. I, my engineer is saying we got a couple of minutes left. It article by uh, Andre Akulov, uh, yeah. uh, October sixth. that CIA activities in Syria stepped up. U.S. Uh, stepped up aid to Islamists. So, is the CIA um, sort of helping out the Islamists there? I guess try to overthrow the the government there.
5: Well, what's interesting, Jay, it's even more insidious than that, actually, and it's more cynical than that. The, the, the administration has decided that it wants to help fund a stalemate between the warring factions in Syria. They don't want either side to win, but they, don't want, but they certainly don't want their side to lose. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is that they're doubling the number of rebel fighters who they are giving instructions to in Jordan and setting them loose in Syria, which, of course, causes more murder and more mayhem and more madness. Uh, but they're having just enough to keep the violence going, but not enough for them to to actually win. So it really is the the, the worst of all. And this is in the same week when the administration has praised uh, the leadership in Syria for being so cooperative in the destruction of its uh of its chemical weapons so yeah if, if they're backing away from this uh... these things that we are upset about yeah then why is it that we continue to fund a, a, a rebel movement in in syria most of them are foreign and over seventy five percent of them now are, are jihadists you know there there are no moderates there so why do we ramp up our assistance to them
2: good question i guess somebody's making a lot of money with this daniel it certainly seems like bad faith I, I think uh, you know Richard Mayberry, uh, uh, who says that you know this is going to go on and on, and he sees all this going on. That that uh, one of the ways you can make money, if you can stand, uh, if your conscience will allow it, is to buy uh, military, uh, you know, armament stocks. And uh, anyway, I I can't do it personally. It's not in my I, I, I was brought up as a, as a conscious projector. It's very difficult for me to to uh, be a part of that, but uh, I want to thank you very much, Daniel. We're out of time for enlightening us as to what's really going on in, uh, in our foreign policy. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jay. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with uh, some closing thoughts about today's show and to talk to you a little bit about next week's guests. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, with some uh, thoughts about today's show. I thought today's show was more practical than many of them. I mean, we talk a lot on this show about philosophical issues, about economics, about even uh, theological and and spiritual issues from time to time. We touch on those a little bit in any event. But I thought today's show with uh, Chris Krupe, starting with him of Paramount Gold and Silver – uh, Chris is, that, that's a company that I think is going to do extremely well. They have uh, deep pockets behind them. They have uh, two major uh, gold and silver projects in Nevada and Mexico. So when this gold mining situation finally turns around, as Jim Paplava noted these kind of stocks will go like rockets straight up. They'll really do very, very well. And we've had a year and a half, two years of, of a depression in the gold and uh, silver mining sector. I think we're going to be coming out of that uh, in not the not-too-distant future. So I was interested in Jim's view that we will probably see a bouncing around here a little bit longer before we start to see a catalyst that will drive the share prices and the gold price up. Anthem Blanchard, likewise, I think has a lot to offer with Anthem. Um, vault and uh, go to their websites, both Paplava's and, and uh, Anthem's website, not only to learn more about the services they provide their respective uh, organizations, but also a lot of great content in uh, economic content, market content on both of those as well. Um, Daniel McAdams, as always, give us uh, gave us a, a brief uh, view of the uh, international world that is uh, so far removed from our mainstream media. And uh, I want to thank Daniel for being with us as well. Uh, I should mention next week our special guest will be uh, Chris Blasey of Neptune Global Holdings. That's another precious metals, uh, full-service metals dealer. Uh, he, he also has some very unique pro, uh, products to offer, um, as uh, as Anthem did today. Uh, Chris has some more other very interesting things, uh, things you might want to consider uh, going forward. He will also have some ideas on the economy and markets, I'm sure, going forward. We're going to uh, shift gears a little bit next week and talk to Dr. Murray Susser, He's a a medical doctor who's going to talk to us about health. He's going to talk to us. uh, He's one that thinks outside the the box. And that's what I like about the guests that we have on this show. Uh, Guests that are not afraid to stray outside of the establishment box. Well, Dr. Susser uh, blends a traditional and alternative medicine uh, together, uh, for dealing with the treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome and a host of other important ailments. Uh, as a person who's, uh, into his retirement age, it's certainly a, a topic that appeals to me, uh, is good health, how to retain it as long as possible, how to live responsibly. The establishment, uh, you know, has its own reasons we, uh, to lie and to, and to bl- uh, bend the truths. We heard about Goldman Sachs, how they're telling you to sell your gold when they're buying it. Dan McAdams of course talked to us about what's going on internationally. Uh, the lies and the half-truths and the propaganda. Uh, As Ellen Brown pointed out, it's only the rogue nations that we seem to think we need to go to war with because they won't play ball with the World Bank and the IMF. Well, such is the world we live in. And, you know, sometimes I get extremely angry. I'll be sitting there riding my bike, doing a workout, and I'll have uh, President Obama or somebody else coming out and saying things I know, at least I believe, are absolute lies. And I can get very, very angry. My wife pointed out a very good... Uh, verse from the Bible that I think is worth thinking about. And I think, you know, if I looked at Ron Paul, who's able to not take it personally and to get angry at people, but basically argue the ideas, uh, I think this is very important the scripture verse is from Ephesians 6.10 for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers of the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the dark, in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness end of quote well certainly None of us have righteousness, that's for sure, but it's better if we, can, uh, if we can depersonalize these things and realize it's not the individual that we should be getting angry at, but it's the ideas, the evil ideas, I think, evil ideas of forced socialism, forcing anything on other human beings is certainly not uh, the, the value system that I was brought up in and I believe, uh, believe in. And I think is godly. So, in closing, I want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer. Thanks to Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor.